the views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of this station. Content is for educational purposes only. Consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence of investing. Calls are pre-screened and the show was pre-recorded earlier this week. Rick is with Edelman Financial Engines, a part of Financial Engines Advisors, LLC, and the investment advisor that furnishes this program. Barron's ranks financial advisory firms based on assets managed, team size, experience, and regulatory record. Firms self-nominate. Investment returns and experience are not considered. Advisors in the Hall of Fame have been in the top 100 for 10 plus years. Future performance is not guaranteed. This is the Rick Edelman Show. Barron's ranks Edelman Financial Engines, the number one independent investment advisor in the country. And Rick is in the Barron's Financial Advisor Hall of Fame. Now, sitting in for Rick, here's Isabel Barrow. Welcome to the Rick Edelman Show this weekend. I'm Isabel Barrow, in for Rick and Jean today. Rick will be back next week. And if you haven't heard me fill in before, I am one of the 320-plus financial planners here at Edelman Financial Engines. Give us a call if you have a question at 888-PLAN-RICK, rickedelman.com. As we reflect on the first half of 2021, it's really hard to find anything but positive news in the financial fronts. The economy is continuing to show signs of a strong recovery from the pandemic, and the stock markets reached record level highs. You've probably been seeing double-digit annual returns on your statements, and your investments seem to just keep going up and up and up and up. Well, there may be a dip every now and again, but an almost immediate recovery follows. And if you're getting back out there in shops and restaurants and airports, you're seeing more people out spending money. They're shopping, they're going out to eat, they're traveling, and, you know, for the most part, enjoying their ability to move around freely again. Maybe with more masks now than a couple months ago. But does it just seem too good to be true. It's certainly better than your average year, your average market returns. So instead of just taking it all for granted, because of course, you know, we always expect good returns, don't we? That's why we invest. We never want to focus on down markets. But you should be thinking about a couple of key areas like how long will a strong economy last? And what about inflation? Will the stock market stay strong? And obviously, nobody knows what the future holds, but our team of investment managers and financial planning professionals have put together an overview of what's happening now, what you might expect in the near future, what it all could mean for you. And I'm going to try to tackle some of this on today's show. The U.S. economy is continuing its strong recovery due to, for the most part, progress that we've made in fighting COVID-19 and, of course, trillions of dollars of government stimulus. The economy is doing so well, in fact, that economists are predicting more than six and a half percent annual GDP growth this year, which is the fastest pace on record since 1984. Corporate earnings have also moved higher. And in January, analysts had estimated that the S&P 500 earnings would grow 22 percent in 2021. But now that estimate's increased to 36 percent as actual results have started to come in. And the S&P has closed at new all-time highs more than 35 times so far this year. Market volatility on average is back to pre-pandemic lows. But over the last few weeks, we have seen some very short-term volatility, you know, way down one day, way up the next day. I mean, one day a couple of weeks ago, the Dow was down almost 725 points, which was a 2% drop. And that recent sell-off came as news of the COVID variants was terrifying investors that we were all of a sudden at, at risk of starting up again some of the same issues we had early on in the pandemic, like supply chain failures, lockdowns, closures, and all of that. 
airline, oil and gas, cruise lines, hotels, shopping malls. Well, those were some of the worst performers that day, just like they had been back in February and March of 2020. But grocery stores, pharmaceuticals, technology, you know, personal hygiene, those types of stocks were good performers. It was the same type of companies that had done well during last year's panic selling too. And overall, that day's sell-off really looked a lot like what happened or was happening regularly in early 2020. And can you guess what were the biggest gainers on the day of that big drop? Well, Regeneron, Clorox, Kroger. Yeah, all the same stuff investors were buying up last year during that initial panic. And then the very next day, Well, the market's reversed course, and many of the previous day's winners went down, and a lot of the losers went up. It was like deja vu all over again, back to March and April of 2020. But this time, the rally was because investors saw another round of stellar earnings coming out of American companies. Of the roughly 110 companies in the S&P that had posted results for the second quarter, 85% topped analysts' profit forecasts. And of course, you've heard that the Dow Jones passed 35,000 a week or two ago for the first time ever, and it was the fastest ever 5,000-point gain. It only took 165 trading days to go from 30,000 to 35,000. And the way we saw these markets respond to the fear that a new COVID variant's going to pull us back into the 2020-era economy, well, you might look at that and say, see, History does repeat itself. And you, you know, you hear us on this, this show all the time say past performance is not an indicator of future results. And then you see history actually repeating itself last week with the sell off and the recovery that looked a lot like the spring of 2020. So you might be forgiven if you momentarily forgot that the past really never repeats itself exactly. And it's hard to mentally separate out successful investing over the long term with other long-term things in our lives. Because in general, in our society, if something's a good product or if somebody's good at something, that product or skill persists. And price is generally seen as a sign of something being good quality. The more expensive a car is, the better it will run, right? We're used to things in our lives being predictable and following similar patterns. And there is some truth to that in the markets. Stocks whose earnings and prices have recently been rising do tend to keep winning in the very short term, and those that have lately been losers can keep losing. But the stock market is a complex and dynamic system that doesn't follow the rules as same rules as cars or athletes over the long term. In investing, history rarely repeats itself for long, and it's precisely because of the dynamic price of the stock investment. If the price is low enough for people to consider it good enough to buy, and then it keeps doing well, well, more and more people jump on the bandwagon, driving the price up further. I mean, there are, after all, so many shares available. So the price keeps getting driven up until now it's expensive, and then people start selling. Or maybe the company just can't continue to perform at the same level it had before, and that's bringing the price back down, generating losses for those investors who bought it when it was high. But people still want to believe that the past will predict the future. An example of this was looked at in a recent analysis of 10 years of investor surveys, and it showed that when the market's up, people believe it will continue to rise. The analysis looked at the direct correlation between what people expected the market to do in the future based on what it had done in the past. And a percentage increase in the previous month's S&P 500 returns resulted in the same increase in the percentage of investors who felt the market would rise in the coming six months. So in other words, if the market's up by 5% for the previous month, 5% more people felt the market would continue to rise over the next six months. Meaning, 
They directly correlated the past month's performance with expectations of future performance. Investors seem to believe that the recent past can predict the future no matter how many times they're told otherwise. And interestingly, and along the same lines, perhaps there's something about the language that's used around investing that perpetuates this myth. Behavioral scientists tested some different disclaimers about past investment performance on people in the U.S. You know, disclaimers like past performance is no indication of future results or something similar. Participants were given a choice to either invest in fund A or fund B, and they could see the fund's fees and its gains and losses over the prior month, but the returns were random. On average, however, fund A was outperforming over time and its fees were lower. Then the participants viewed the standard mutual fund disclaimer, past performance does not guarantee future results associated with fund B. And many chose that fund, even though it had higher fees and lower average returns. So reading the phrase, quote, does not guarantee future results, unquote, caused them to think, well, it might not be a guarantee per se, but that must mean it's just really likely. (laughs) The researchers found the warning should have said, quote, Some people invest based on past performance, but funds with low fees have the highest future results. Using the term some people caused the potential investors to avoid that fund because they don't want to be just some people. Now, what does this all mean for you and how does it relate to how you're investing and and what does it mean for our investment offerings? Well, it serves as a reminder and a warning, perhaps, that accurately and consistently predicting which area of the market will lead over any given period of time is extremely difficult and probably impossible. That's why we are recommending investing in a broadly diversified portfolio with exposure to many different types of investments. And if you need help understanding what's the right portfolio for you or how to avoid the old trap of chasing past performance, give us a call at 888-PLAN-RIC. We'd be happy to help. And in case you missed it, we hosted a virtual event called 11 Questions to Ask Before Hiring a Financial Advisor. It's designed to help you select a financial advisor that's right for you. And if you haven't seen it yet, there's still time to watch a video of the presentation. You'll go to edelmanfinancialengines.com to get the video of the full presentation and all of our advice about how to choose a financial advisor and a PDF download of the 11 questions you can take with you as you interview candidates. Well, new data shows that if you're a cash payer at a hospital instead of an insurance company, you likely paid more at the same hospital for the same service. A journal study of thousands of prices at hundreds of hospitals revealed that many charge top prices to patients who have to pay cash out of pocket compared with the prices that the insurers are negotiating. So there was an example of one patient who had an abdominal and pelvic scan at the hospital, and it cost him $6,400, which was three times the best deal negotiated by an insurance company. Well, you just may not know that hospitals often charge different customers different prices for the exact same service. And these rates at wide pricing differences were confidential until this past January when a new federal rule required hospitals to make those prices public. And over and over, it showed that cash payers are charged among the highest prices. These patients typically pay these cash prices because they're either uninsured or because some of the services may not be covered by their particular health plan. At least 44% of hospitals still haven't published data to comply with the January rule. But of those that did, on average, the fees for uninsured patients were three and a half times the average rates paid by the Medicare Advantage plans. Coming up on the Rick Edelman Show, we're talking about inflation and the real estate markets, what to look out for when you're thinking of buying a new home. Stay with us for more on the Rick Edelman Show. Triple eight, plan Rick, or reach us at rickedelman.com. 
the publisher of the newsletter Inside Personal Finance. Coming up on the Rick Edelman Show. back to the Rick Edelman Show. I'm Isabel Barrow, one of the planners here at Edelman Financial Engines, and I'm filling in for Rick and Jean today. Rick will be back next week. If you have a question you'd like Rick to answer, make a recording on your smartphone and send it to us at askrick at rickedelman.com. Or if you'd like to find out more about meeting with one of our experienced financial planners at over 150 locations around the nation, give us a call at 888-PLAN-RICK. That's 888-752-6742. Now, in the last segment, we talked about the markets and the economy, you know, all the good stuff, all the stuff that's doing well right now. But let's talk about what you might be worried about and what could be one of the areas that you're thinking is a potential risk to this really strong economy and the markets that we've had so far this year. And I'm talking about inflation. The CPI rose between May of 2020 and 2021. It rose by 5%, which was the largest yearly gain since August of 2008. But inflation so far is still low compared to the average over the last 50 years. And there are a lot of different pressures that are creating these higher prices. And and, and most of them are short-term factors. So it's things like spikes in consumer spending, supply chain issues, the increased need for more workers in a lot of areas. Prices for cars and truck rentals, gas, hotels, airline tickets, all of those are higher now than they were this time last year. Now, As it's related to inflation, bond markets do tend to be indicators of what investors are thinking about long-term inflation risks. And so if we look at the fixed income markets, current bond prices are predicting that inflation will be modestly higher for the next year or two and then decline toward the recent longer-term average of two, let's say two and a half percent. And so we've already seen a little bit of a pullback in these inflation fears lately, and interest rates have recently fallen again. There have been some recent price declines in some commodities as well, like lumber, which we saw super inflated earlier this year. And some of this is because finally, a lot of these supply chain issues are getting worked out. But Progress might be slow in some areas, computer chips being an example of one of those. And of course, that's still having an impact on new car production, for example. All that said, uncertainty about future inflation remains high, but a healthy and a growing economy will always have or should have some modest price increases over time. And and a 2% annual inflation target is part of the Federal Reserve's dual mandate. And at its June meeting recently, the Fed left the Fed funds rate near zero. But committee members did signal that a rate hike might be coming sooner than expected. And the general consensus on this is that it could indicate maybe one or two quarter point increases sometime in 2023. And the Fed also signaled that they might consider reducing monthly asset purchases. Now, the second part of the Fed's dual mandate is a focus on full employment. Job growth has been strong this year, but total employment is still 6.7 million jobs lower than pre-pandemic levels. And total payrolls are only around 95% of the February 2020 levels. And of course, this is varied across all sectors. Jobs in professional and business service industries have recovered well, while leisure, hospitality, all of that, that has a much longer road ahead. 
in June, the economy added 850,000 jobs versus expectations for 720. But weekly unemployment claims are still above pre-pandemic levels, you know, still, however, well below last year's highs. And it'll be interesting to see if this dynamic changes once the supplemental unemployment insurance programs are phased out. But no matter what, it's going to take more time for labor markets to adjust. So, you know, at this time, we really need to take a wait and see approach as it relates to inflation because we're still not in a normalized labor environment. And that could be causing some of these inflation numbers. And with inflation for you as a consumer, it's a different issue than the risk of inflation that you face as an investor. Because inflation of your food and gas prices is is harder to plan for and can be really short term. But because inflation is always a player in the long term as it affects your investments, it has to play a role in a well-thought-out financial plan. So whether inflation is higher than average or lower than average, your investment strategy needs to take it into account either way. And the likelihood of higher future prices is something that we explicitly consider when we're developing financial plans. You know, current expectations are for strong economic growth and modest increases in inflation, but expectations are not guarantees. So in our financial planning process here, we stress test plans against a wide range of future possible inflation rates. And our overall investment strategy remains broad diversification, timely rebalancing, careful investment selection, long-term investing. If you're concerned about your portfolio's risk associated with inflation or the economy, give us a call and schedule an appointment with one of our financial planners. We have 300 and over 150 offices around the country. We're at 888-PLAN-RICK or rickedelman.com. But changing gears to look at the bigger picture here, there's an interesting societal change going on in America and maybe the world right now. People are retiring and leaving jobs in numbers we have not seen before, and it's for a variety of reasons. A recent Federal Reserve survey showed that two and a half million affluent Americans, 55 or older, say that they plan to retire soon. And the number of people expecting to work after 67 is at a record low of only 33%. And two-thirds of people say they're going to quit before age 67, and this has never happened before. Some of the drivers are affluence, you know, you have more money, and after the pandemic, you've realized that life is short and you want to make the most of it. And a new poll from Monster.com found that 95% of workers are thinking about finding a new job, and they say it's often because of just plain old burnout. Consulting firm Gartner found that 55% of workers reported experiencing significant burnout over the last 15 months. According to Microsoft's Work Trend Index, 41% of workers worldwide say they're likely considering switching jobs within the next year, and indeed found that 52% of respondents had reported burnout with the majority of those polled saying that their level of burnout has gotten significantly worse during the pandemic. But even workers who say they have no plans to leave their current employer say the pandemic added new demands, new stresses to their jobs. And what's causing burnout is typically longer, more frequent meetings. Often there aren't breaks in between because it's virtual. You know, you don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to walk down the hall. You know, you're just sitting at the same desk. According to Microsoft's Work Trend Index, the average meeting time has jumped by 10 minutes up to 45 minutes. And the global workforce is spending two and a half times as long in Microsoft team meetings as they did a year ago. 
The average user on that Microsoft Teams platform is sending 45% more chats per week and 42% more chats during what's considered to be their off hours. So they're just working around the clock. And while many Americans are retiring or quitting or changing careers, it's leaving a lot of industries in a desperate search for qualified and willing employees. And if you're considering retiring or finding a part-time job or switching careers, later on the show, we're going to talk about a few industries that not only pay well, but who are also desperate for workers. And if you're considering retiring... Well, you should be sure to be talking to a financial planner to map out a financial plan before you do it, not after. And if you need some help understanding what to ask, well, in case you missed it, we hosted a special virtual event called 11 Questions to Ask Before Hiring a Financial Advisor. And this is a webinar designed to help you find a financial advisor that's right for you. And if you haven't seen it yet, there's still time to watch a video of the presentation Go to edelmanfinancialengines.com and get a video of the full presentation and all of our advice about how to choose a financial advisor and a PDF download of the actual 11 questions that you can take with you as you interview candidates. Stay with us on The Rick Edelman Show. I'm Isabel Barrow, in for Rick Edelman today. Rick will be back next week. Give us a call at 888-PLAN-RICK, 888-752-6742, or at rickedelman.com. Times bestseller, The Truth About Your Future, coming up on The Rick Edelman Show. Welcome back to The Rick Edelman Show. I'm Isabel Barrow. I'm in for Rick today, and we're going to Catherine in Fresno, California. Catherine, how can we help you today? Uh, well, I was calling because my husband and I are looking to begin investing. We're fairly young. We're 33 and 35, respectively. And we just really didn't know how to begin going about investing properly. I'd always heard good things about IRAs. And one of the biggest challenges for us is that we vary really differently on our risk tolerance. He tends to be extremely conservative, and I tend to be more moderate. So I was hoping to get a little advice on the matter. Okay, so what you're saying is you and your husband don't agree on something. <laughs> we don't know enough about investing right. to know if we disagree. Uh, oh, I'm not sure where to start. <laughs> right. No, I totally get it. Believe me, um, my husband and I disagree on a great many things. I love him very dearly, but um, certainly uh, this is actually one of those that I can concur. You know, know a little or know a lot. One of the challenges facing all married couples is managing personal finance and agreeing on how to approach investing strategies and decisions. So now back to you and your husband. You said you're in your early 30s and he's very conservative. So do you have any experience? Have you ever sat down together with a financial planner and kind of talked about what the purpose of investing would be? No, and I believe that should be the first step. I'm still working on him to go see somebody. He fancies himself uh pretty educated when it comes to investment, but it's sort of an old school thought where 
he really doesn't like to like ask advice on money. And I feel like that's not a good approach. Um, <laughs> you know, he wants to wait until we have a certain amount in the bank. Like he has this weird level to reach before we can even start consider investing in me. I'm like thinking about where I'm going to be in my fifties. And I'm like, I don't want to waste another second. I want to get, even if it's just 500 bucks into an IRA, we should do it. So we're, we're in a really different spot here. I'm wondering if there's aside from, because I don't think he'll pay to go see somebody or I don't think he'll pay to have someone manage our money. So I'm looking for a way to get started without necessarily jumping in with both feet. Good Uh, starting spot for us to work on. I got it. Well, I will say, I think you're both, you're both right. Because on one hand, he's saying, look, honey, we need to have some money in the bank before we can think about investing. And he's right. To a certain degree, you want to have your emergency fund, you do need to have money in the bank. That is an important first thing. And I think any financial planner of any worth or any value is going to tell you, hey, listen, before you start thinking about putting your money into investments, make sure that you have liquidity, make sure you have an emergency fund, something to fall back on. However, how much that emergency fund should be is something that's very specific to you and your circumstances. And it also is dependent on your income and your job security and a whole lot of other things. So while I agree with him, I also think that there is a point that you reach where maybe that's too much or maybe you should be doing a little bit of both. And certainly in your 30s, you are already late to the game here in starting to get saving for retirement. And I know that uh, that sounds harsh, but the reality is, is the more time you have the better, the less you'll have to save in the future. And it's all because of the value of compounding in your investments. So start early so that you don't have to play catch up and do more later. So now is a great time to do it. However, the problem that you're having is the two of you sort of diverge on how to do this, it sounds like. And part of that, I think, is just because he doesn't know in this case, he doesn't want to invest the money because he doesn't know what he's going to need. And the only way that you can know is to actually sit down and work it out. You have to put it on paper. You have to come up with a plan. You have to say, okay, how much do we spend? What's our income? How much do we, you know, when do we want to retire? And how much do we need to have for that goal? And once you can kind of clear away all the cobwebs, it might become clear that, hey, actually, you know, we do need to start saving for the retirement into an IRA or put some money over there. Because if we don't, we're never going to be able to get there because the 1000 a month that we had to save now is 5000 a month in five years if we keep waiting. So let's think about number one. The first step is to just sit down together. And I would say sit down with a financial planner, with a, an investment advisor, someone who can help you kind of come together without arguing, but, you know, with a a disinterested third party, let's say, that will help you with these numbers and say, okay, here's how much we want to um, put toward this emergency fund goal. This is the right number. And then that means that might clear up the way or pave the way for some investing. And by the way, here are the right type of accounts to do it in, in a IRA, maybe, or a Roth, or maybe you have a retirement plan through your employer that you can participate in, or, or maybe it's none of the above. Maybe it's just a regular old investment account, or maybe... It's paying down student loans or paying back debt or putting money towards kids' college. I mean, there's so many different things that encompass financial planning that without having a financial plan, there's no way to know where your money should be going, right? Because you could both be right and you could both be wrong. 
Have you also Mm -hmm. thought about life insurance? Have you thought about legal documents? You know, should you be refinancing your mortgage? There's just so much. It's not just how much in cash and how much should we invest, although you're, you're on the right track. And again, I think you're both right, but also wrong. Okay. <laughs> so now another thing is that you said you don't know that he is going to be comfortable paying a fee, going in to talk to somebody and paying a fee to let them manage his money. Um, why do you say that? Uh- I don't know how there's other way to put it. He's he's cheap. Okay, got it. (laughs) I love him, but he does not like to pay to let anyone do anything. He still works on his own car, and he still, you know, will not hire anyone to do the law. And he's, bless him, he has gotten us really far by being a penny pincher. But (laughs) this is one of those things that I do not agree. I feel like we need to talk to somebody. So I've been working on him slowly to at least have a sit down with somebody and give us some direction. So... Totally agree. Yeah, Yeah, (laughs) I I kind of equate it to this. When I was in my 20s, I would always do my own painting. You know, I would do my own tiling if I had to retile a bathroom. I did it myself because I was cheap. I didn't want to pay for it. And I knew that if I YouTubed it and I got all the supplies, I could do it myself. The problem is, is as as I got older, I realized it took up a lot of time. Um, It was a lot of work, and I didn't know what the heck I was doing, really. And it never came out looking as good as it should have looked. And I always sort of regretted, well, you know, if I had if I had had better equipment, if I had had better tools, if I had a better paintbrush, I could have done it. And oh, I also would go to bed every night after painting, you know, the ceiling and the trim with a neck ache. And so it was also bad for my health. And you get to a certain point where maybe it's time to hire the painter, right? You save yourself the time. You know, maybe you spend a little bit of extra money to do so. But in many cases, at least for me, as I, when I got older, I decided, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to hire the painter, I'm going to have the painter come over and do this for me. I don't you know, I don't have the time. I don't have the desire. And I do not know how to do this. And your husband might get to that point. <laughs> he might get there someday. He may not be there yet. But I think you should keep working on him. Because the first step is to sit down with a financial planner. In most cases, uh, at least here at Edelman Financial Engines, just sitting down with us isn't what costs. It's when you hire us. That's when you're going to begin to pay a fee. And with most financial planners, you you know, you, you, it's going to be similar to that. Or maybe you find a, an hourly financial planner or someone who you sit down and spend two hours with them and they, they'll charge you an hourly fee. But I will say, Catherine, if you do decide to reach out to Edelman Financial Engines, we have an office near you in Fresno. And we would love to talk to you and your husband about your long-term and short-term plans and make sure you're both on track and maybe we can overcome this uh this cheapness and maybe he'll decide to hire the painters after all <laughs> i would hope so and thank you i uh, i have noticed you guys here in town and that's what prompted me to call because i uh, used to listen to rick edelman when i was in the bay area so i was glad that you guys were close by and uh thank you i appreciate your advice Excellent. Well, thank you for reaching out, Catherine, and we look forward to hopefully meeting you soon. Yes, yes. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Stay with us for more on The Rick Edelman Show, 888-PLAN-RICK, 888-752-6742, or reach us at rickedelman.com. information on what you need to do now go to rickedelman.com that's rickedelman.com welcome 
Welcome back to the Rick Edelman Show. I'm Isabel Barrow in for Rick today. Triple Eight Plan Rick, rickedelman.com. Well, not a lot of people have gotten more press recently than Britney Spears and her dad, other than maybe J-Lo and Ben Affleck. I don't know. They're getting a lot of press as well. But Britney has been in the press a lot because she's been in court multiple times this year over her conservatorship. And I've been really interested in this story, both as it relates to her situation, but also because of how it relates to any of us, whether we could potentially need a guardianship or conservatorship at some point in our lives if maybe we would need to act as one for a disabled or elderly family member for some reason. And in Brittany's case, she's asked for changes to this conservatorship and she wants more say in her medical care and her freedoms. And she told the court that every part of her life has been controlled, her diet, how many hours she's working a week. And I think it was shocking to many of us who assumed, at least I did, that the only thing really being controlled was her money, when in fact, it was a lot of her free will and decision making that had been taken away from her due to this conservatorship. And now, due to her complaints about how her requests are being handled, her attorney has resigned. And not only has the attorney resigned, but Bessemer Trust also resigned as the estate's co-conservator. Now, Bessemer Trust is a wealth management firm that was supposed to become the co-conservator on her nearly $60 million estate. But they don't want to be involved anymore. And, you know, in part, it's because Britney Spears has called the conservatorship that she's been placed into 13 years ago abusive. And her case brings up perhaps wider questions on conservatorships and guardianships in general and what can they do and and what do they mean financially. And the point of these types of arrangements in general is to protect the individual if they are unable to or cannot make decisions for themselves. And while for many that's good protection. Advocates for people with disabilities have questioned the need for them in other cases. And I mean, the arrangements are intended to support people who are incapacitated or incapable of making their own decisions. But advocates for people with disabilities say that these guardianships have just been used far too broadly. And then once the guardianship is imposed, as we've seen with Brittany, it can be really difficult to undo or make changes. Now, today, about 1.3 million people live in these types of guardianships in America. Often, it's used for older Americans who can't manage their affairs any longer, but also it's many younger people, including those with intellectual or developmental disabilities. And studies suggest that the number of people in such arrangements has more than tripled in the past three decades. Guardianships can be often permanent and are really poorly understood by the people who are subjected to them. Some states make a distinction between guardianship, which is control over all aspects of a person's life, and conservatorship, which mainly controls financial matters. But either type of arrangement can involve a wide degree or level of control. Under some guardianships, people can lose the right to marry, to vote, to drive, or to seek employment or to retain employment. Guardians are often selected by the court and not by the person under the guardianship. Only 14 states require that those guardians obtain some sort of credentials for the role. And according to many states' laws, guardianships are meant to be a last resort. But in practice, advocates for people with disabilities say that they are imposed without considering other options. And then, of course, as I said, ending the guardianship is really difficult in many places. It can be expensive. It can be time-consuming. And, of course, 
many people just don't know where to begin and they're not empowered to hire a lawyer for themselves while under the guardianship to try to make changes or adjustments to it. And there are less restrictive arrangements that can be used instead of a guardianship in certain cases, like supported decision-making, where you select one or a few trusted advisors to help you make a decision. This option will allow your doctor, your financial planner, your attorney to accept your decision while communicating with your advisor as well for consensus decision-making. And here at Edelman Financial Engines, we offer our clients the option to add a trusted individual on their account or even just simply an authorized individual, someone that we can reach out to or speak to about your financial matters if we're concerned about a decision or a request or if we feel that just a third party, you know, a family member or a friend should be involved for some reason. But it is someone that you as a client have expressly and explicitly directed to us that is a person who can help make those decisions or a person that we can talk to. Another alternative is giving someone a power of attorney. Now, that document authorizes someone to make certain choices on your behalf, sometimes only for a certain period of time. You know, say you're going to be having a medical procedure and you feel that you may be out of commission for a couple of weeks. Well, you might want to give your spouse a temporary power of attorney. Another is an advanced medical directive where you indicate what you want to be done if you became incapacitated in the future. And each of these options give you the choice to choose who you want to act on your behalf or who would make decisions on your behalf. And these are both often documents that are added as part of an entire estate plan. That would be along with a will, maybe a trust or or multiple trusts. And if you think that you need this, talk with an estate attorney and make sure that you have all the documents you need. And if you have them, also, please make sure that they're up to date and they still say what you want them to. Because if they're 20 years old, you might need to review them or even update them. And my bet is that your life is a lot different than it was 20 years ago, if that's when you had the documents written. Now, on the topic of estate planning, many Americans are not waiting until they die to give away their money, but they're doing it while they're alive. And this has been called the greatest wealth transfer in modern history. Baby boomers and older Americans have spent decades growing their money, accumulating this just enormous stockpile. Americans age 70 and above have a net worth of nearly $35 trillion at the end of the first quarter of 2021. That's 27% of all of the wealth in the United States. And it's equal to 157% of our U.S. GDP. Now, these baby boomers and up have started gifting and transferring out the sum of this money to their heirs and to others. And it's contributed probably to the recent flurry of economic activity, the home buying, the businesses starting up, the charitable donations. And it's projected that these older generations are going to hand down about $70 trillion by 2042. Now, about $61 trillion is estimated to go to heirs, including mostly millennials and Gen Xers. And what they're not giving to heirs, they're leaving to charities and philanthropy. The average inheritance in 2019 was more than 212,000, which was up 45% from 1998, even on an inflation-adjusted calculation of 146,000. As I mentioned earlier, people aren't waiting until they die. Annual gifts, and I'm, I'm only talking about those that are reported to the IRS, 
those rose to $75 billion in 2016 from an inflation-adjusted $45 billion in 2010. Now, the gift tax exemption today is over $11 million for individuals and over $23 million for couples. In 2026, it's currently scheduled to return to the $5.5 million per person adjusted for inflation. Now, these wealth transfers have raised the eyebrows of lawmakers, and the Biden administration recently proposed changing what's currently a $40 billion annual tax break. And what I'm talking about is capital gains taxes or the step up in capital gains under current law. Under current law, if you inherit an asset, your cost basis resets to the price at the owner's death. Meaning, if your dad left you stock that he bought for 100 bucks and it's now worth a million, there are no capital gains owned on that stock if you sell it right away. Your cost basis was the million that it was worth when your dad died, not the 100 he paid for it. And if he sold it during his lifetime instead, he would have paid capital gains on the other 999,900 that was his capital gain. But under the new proposal, the owner's unrealized gains would become taxable in the year of his or her death. Although each person would receive a million dollar exemption plus 250000 more for residences. The proposal would also raise the long-term capital gains rate up to 43, almost 43.5%. Now, to be clear, this is not law yet, but it's moving along in the system. So we'll see where it ends up once it's all written into law. But even now, it makes sense to start to plan. If you're considering giving a gift or if you're the recipient of a gift or you're just thinking about your overall assets and how to distribute them, your first call should be to an estate attorney to get advice about setting up legal documents. But if you need help looking at how this would play a role in your bigger picture financial planning, give us a call and see if a meeting with one of our financial planners could make sense. Triple Eight Plan Rick. Well, we've talked about a lot of things on the show today that might lead you to feel like now's the time to talk to a financial planner about your overall financial situation, but you don't know what to ask. Well, in case you missed it, we recently hosted a special virtual event called 11 Questions to Ask Before Hiring a Financial Advisor, and and it's designed to help you select a financial advisor that's right for you. So if you didn't get a chance to see it, well, there's still time to catch a video of the presentation on edelmanfinancialengines.com. Go there to catch the video of the full presentation, as well as get our advice on how to choose a financial advisor. Get a PDF download of the 11 questions that you can take with you as you interview candidates. Well, thanks for sticking around with me here on the Rick Edelman Show today. I'm Isabel Barrow, in for Rick and Jean. Rick will be back next week. Thanks for staying with us. Triple Eight Plan Rick, rickedelman.com. Get the truth about money every weekend on The Rick Edelman Show.